Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 36, How the Victorians Took Us to the Moon. It's always great to hear from people who also enjoy the Victorian era. Whether you've been a long-time listener or this is your first time, thank you so much for taking the time to try out my humble podcast. Getting emails, DMs or tweets from people around the world with suggestions or liking something I've done is enormously appreciated. But recently, I got a different kind of mail. The lovely Nicole over at Pegasus Books contacted me with an inquiry about if I would be interested in talking to Dr. Ewan Rees-Morris about his new book, just out December 6th, called How the Victorians Took Us to the Moon, The Story of the 19th Century Innovators Who Forged Our Future. Now, I know not all of us are readers, but if you're into Victorian history, you probably are by default. And getting the opportunity to talk to an author about his latest Victorian work? Are you going to say no? I know I certainly wrote back yes while the email was still hot, so to speak. I mean, he's written 10 books, many on the Victorian era. He has a PhD in philosophy science and he teaches at the University of Aberystwyth. And I'm really hoping I got that right because I made poor Ewan pronounce it for me enough times. But he was an absolute pleasure to speak to, and when you hear him talk, you can tell he loves his history as much as we all do. So please, go buy the book. I've read it, and it has so many great stories in it. You're going to want this one for your Victorian book collection. I hope you enjoy the interview. Dr. Morris, thank you very much for joining me here on the Victorian Gaslamp podcast. We're talking about your new book, how the Victorians took us to the moon. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get an advanced copy of this a week or so ago, although it was commercially released on December 6th. This is, I believe, your 10th book, or maybe your 11th. You write a lot of books and you really love the Victorian era, from what I can see. Uh, yes, I suppose I do write a lot of books, <laughs> when I, as I think about it. Um, but then I suppose the first one came out in... Well, the first one came out last century, just about, in 1998. So they've been kind of spaced out for about a quarter century. That makes me feel old. (laughs) I know the feeling. Um, (laughs) Well, I'm a historian of science. I I mean, I like writing books. I enjoy writing Mm -hmm. books. And in recent years, I've tried to write books that are are more popular, that are more accessible. I mean, like How the Victorians Took Us to the Moon because I think this stuff is interesting, obviously. <laughs> I think yeah. it's fascinating. Um, and I also think that it's quite important. I mean, science, science and technology now yeah. play a very, very important role in, 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 in contemporary culture. I mean, everything we're doing, I mean, we're doing things like this. Yeah. Well, exactly. I'm here, we're over <laughs> there on uh... the other side of the world. You know, we, you know, we do this unthinkingly about, you know, without yeah. pondering for a second. You know, the kind of huge technological achievement and yeah. underpins you know, pretty much all aspects of everyday life. 
Yeah, because it's so central to our lives. I think it's really important to understand the history, to, the, you know, mm. to understand the cultural history in yeah. particular, of, you know, of, of, of you know, how we got here. Mm. Um, so that's why I'm, you know, that's why I'm trying to write more and more popular stuff because I think it's important that lots of people. I want to touch on some of that historical history repeating itself aspect in just a moment because I did make a note about that but my first question to you would be a couple of your previous books you had Nikola Tesla and the electrical future and also Michael Faraday the electrical century although it's very well known if you like colloquially as being the era of steam and steampunk and, and so forth the Victorian era electricity really played a large part throughout that century what was it really that attracts you to the electrical aspect I guess I should say um, one of the things that I'm interested in is the relationship between science and spectacle. Mm-hmm. Science, as, you know, science is a source of wonder, I suppose one might say. Something, you know, some, you know, science is kind of gee whiz. Um, I mean, in contemporary culture, things, you know, things, you know, things like those wonderful images from you know, the Webb Telescope or from the Hubble. There's wonderful spectacles of space. And yeah, you know, that kind of spectacular science has a long history and you know, stretches way back yeah. into the yeah. certainly certainly into the eighteenth century. Um, so I'm interested in how science is put on show, how science is made public, if you like. Yeah. Um, and throughout the nineteenth century, electricity really was you know, you know, central to that kind of sense of science as spectacle, because electricity is, so to speak, spectacular. So you know, in the nineteenth century. If you're a Londoner, um, you would go to places like the Adelaide Gallery or the Royal Polytechnic Institution, and you'd go there to see you know, the latest inventions. You'd go to see electrical machines. You'd go yeah. to see Professor yeah. Pepper, you know, playing with his you know, his monster coil, as yeah. he called it, you know, this huge, huge induction coil uh, that generates a spark as he, as he pronounces 29 inches long. Um, I mean, I've got a little baby induction coil that produces a spark. Ooh, something like that. Um, three centimeters. Yeah. In our terminology, in our terminology, it takes about 50,000 volts okay. to generate a little, little spark like that. So 29 inches, that's a lot of electricity. That's that spectacle. Um, yeah, I, I suppose it's a bit like when you go to say some of the modern um, science. Well, we have one here in Australia uh, called Science Works, or, or it's like a science exhibition centre to encourage children to be interested in science. And they often have the Jacob's ladder and the big electrical plasma generators and so forth. They're always popular. Um, yes, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm ab- absolutely. I mean, when you go to those kinds of of, of, of contemporary you know, science exhibitions, I mean, very very often what you're seeing actually is a kind of jazzed up. Yeah, well, sort of modernised version of you know, of nineteenth century electrical spectacle. Um, and I think, I mean, it's that kind of role of electricity as you know, as something spectacular, as something that generates wonder. Mm. I think that in all sorts of ways makes electricity so central to the Victorian imagination, so to speak. Um, because, yeah, as you said, like, the cold hard reality, I guess, is that. You know, the 19th century was the century of steam but it's interesting to see how quickly electricity kind of takes over you know the ways in which victorians imagine the future i mean you know the rainhill trials on the liverpool manchester railway um you know, that's when you know, stevenson's rocket you know, 
wins the race, so to speak, and kind of establishes steam engine. Yeah, that's in 1829. Within a decade of that, you know, you have commentators saying, "Ah, steam, old hat, steam. That's that's the past. Electricity is the future. We're going to be sending boats across the Atlantic with electricity. We're going to be using electricity to power our railways. Electricity." very quickly becomes the kind of shape of things to come for the Victorians. And of course, this is when powerful new technologies, like the electromagnetic telegraph, right at the beginning of the Victorian period, are taking off, which kind of transform notions of kind of speed and communication and time and space. All of a sudden, you can can send messages from one to another, just like that. Well, the yeah, telegraph, before the telegraph. the telegraph, yeah, it shrunk the world effectively. You know, I could be, yes, you, yeah. okay, we can talk like this now visually to each other online, which is virtually comparable maybe to going from, say, steam to electricity. We've gone from having very basic computers in, say, the 80s to what we have now where we're talking like this. But they were looking at, at such dramatic changes over that time period with the way technology was going. Um, yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, I mean, think, I mean, think about the telegraph before the 1840s. You know, when those networks really started started spreading. If you wanted to send a message, so, you know, from London to Aberystwyth, because here I am, you could send that message basically as quickly as you yourself could get mm, from to London get to Aberystwyth. So that would be days at least the wrong time of year it might be weeks once you have the telegraph well in Aberystwyth's case that that's the 1860s is when the railways cross the mountains once you've got that then you can do it instantaneously and yes literally shrinking the world is the way that Victorian commentators talk about talk about when when they talk about about the telegraph it suddenly made the world more accessible and of course more controllable in all sorts of ways it's no accident that by the end of the 19th century, you know, as kind of underwater cable networks proliferate across the world, they're largely owned by British companies and they're largely under British imperial control. They have what they call the All Red Route. The All Red Route is a network of undersea telegraph cables that link together all the outposts of empire, so New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, other African colonies, you know, Canada, all, all of those co- colonies linked together by telegraph and crucially by telegraph cables that do not cross potentially hostile territory, otherwise yes. known as Russia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, the telegraph matters for the governance of empire. So but, you, you, know, you uh, want to have it under your control. And I noticed that in, in your book, um, it wasn't only the UK that was aiming towards these technologies, the other countries of say France or the US and so forth were trying as well. It was very much about that show of empire. Who, who's the big one? So we see yes. Britain dominating with the telegraph and getting those cables out. And, you know, you had um, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, you know, how we had the, the great Eastern lane, that transatlantic cable and, and so forth. And that was very much showing we're the best. We might be small, but we can reach everywhere all of the time. Uh, yes, I mean that's absolutely that's absolutely so. I mean, I, I, you, I mean you, you can't understand Victorian science and technology. I think you can't understand certainly the way the Victorians themselves thought about science and technology without 
understanding that you know, you know, the, you know these are things that are kind of entirely entangled with with the imperial project mm. so to speak there's a strong sense i think in the way that you know scientific institutions the ways of doing science were transformed and you know, disciplined as the victorians would say yes at the beginning of the century is kind of directed at putting science at the service of the commonwealth is the, the sort of language what, what they might often use what they mean is that it's it's an imperial project this is making science useful for for the state for the empire in the victorian era we do see that transition from um sir joseph banks being in charge of the royal society and like you outlined this really well i thought um he's in charge it's basically very much his power game he's got connections everywhere throughout all the very large government bodies social bodies that sort of thing he has influence everywhere and for him though largely science is a bit of a gentleman's club we sort of do it I'll do it my way. You do it your way, Professor. And we sort of come out to some results, but we start to see a group, and I'll get, I'll clarify this more in a minute, a group of middle-class white men who are more disciplined and wanting to be able to, say, replicate results, have a standardised process that they do with their science. And by doing so, they push forward the actual discipline of science as opposed to who you know gets you the better job um, yeah i mean I, I, discipline is the mantra mm. um for this kind of new breed of you know, men of science i mean and as you've already pointed out you know, the, you know, the men of science here yeah. needs, needs, needs serious underlining i mean this is i mean this is what they call themselves they are men of science the word scientist is actually coined during this period nobody nobody calls themselves a scientist they're men of science Science is understood to be a process that requires discipline. You know, it's a vocation. You need a particular kind of training. You need a particular kind of mind. And the supposition is that the kind of mind that you need in order to be a man of science is a masculine mm. mind. A mind that's capable of disciplining <laughs> itself and therefore of disciplining the world around it. Yeah, and it, although it is interesting, this is where I want to get into very much a case I found when reading your work was that we've almost got a, a history repeating itself. We have very much like a, a great man theory concept, of course, of he's the person that it, obviously it's going to be mainly males in this situation, although I know you do credit that there were, I wrote it down here, hidden armies of women. So there was definitely people behind them and certainly females as well. We have the one man at the top and then we have the incredible group of men and women, engineers and technicians and trades and so forth, all working together. He's the figurehead and gets the credit, but he really couldn't have done it alone. Whereas you take someone, as you, you write in the book, Nikola Tesla was very much isolated, wanting to do it by himself and ultimately didn't succeed as much as what he might have because he didn't have that group of people behind him. I thought it was interesting because we see today, and I'm going to make, it's probably a really crude parallel, but we've seen someone like Elon Musk who goes and says, I'm brilliant, I'm the best, I'm great. He takes a very, well, Twitter already existed certainly, but he gets his concept and he tries to get rid of everybody and say, no, it's just me is all you need. And then he has to go back and get all of those people to make it work again. So just because you're a great man, if you like, in the public eye, doesn't mean you can do everything and he's finding that out now but all of these brilliant people that we see from the victorian era 
didn't work alone. Kingdom Isambard Brunel didn't work alone. He had all of those people behind him um, doing all the work on all the ships and so forth. And the teams of engineers that did the Thames Tunnel with his father, Mark, as well, and so forth like that. So it's kind of interesting that that dynamic of a, a great man needs to have all of those people behind him because they're the ones that do make him great. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think, I mean, it, it's a fascinating paradox, I think, of the way that the Victorians think about you know, where, so to speak, science and technology come from. It's it's a, yeah, it's a great man's story. It's a story, you know, the, you know, the lone genius or the, the lone engineer, a Stevenson or a, yeah. or a Brunel who kind of transforms the world single-handedly. Whilst the reality, as you've just pointed out, to the Victorian period, is that this is the age of of, of, of collective work. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's not Cyrus Field that lays the trans transatlantic no. cable single-handed. <laughs> yeah. There are literally whole armies of people, literally armies do doing that. Edison invents the light bulb. Well, you know, there's a whole army of bright young men in the Menlo Park Laboratory doing a lot of that work. There are engineers, including Tesla himself in his youth, you know, at their, you know, doing the work of maintaining these these networks of power. And yes, I mean, I, I, I think that your parallel with the way we think about these things now is absolutely spot on. And in fact, is one of the reasons that I, that I wrote the book, because we absolutely have inherited from the Victorians a very particular view, I mean, that view mm. of how these sorts of things get done. And it's a kind of lone hero view still very much. I think it makes for um, an uh, easier yeah. narrative to write. Yeah, it's it's it, you know, it's very easy to say, yes, you know, Faraday invented all this electrical stuff. I mean, yeah. Faraday himself would be quite insulted by the notion that he invented anything. He was a philosopher, not a <laughs> mechanic, as far as he was concerned. As you say, something like Tesla, the problem, I mean, Tesla's fundamental problem, so to speak. Was that Tesla believed his own hype? I mean, he had this very, very carefully cultivated image of himself as the iconoclast, the rule breaker, the guy who was different, was going to do it all himself. So the reality was, you know, that's you know, that's not how things got done, or that's not that's not how things get done now. Musk, I think, is a really interesting parallel. Let's face it, you know. Musk's car isn't called Tesla by accident. Musk is absolutely, <laughs> to a degree, modelling himself on that kind, self-styled, disruptive, iconoclastic figure. I mean, yeah, I mean this is why Nikola Tesla yeah, has been you know, yet again resurrected as you know, kind of, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the favourite hero of Silicon Valley tech bros, basically. Yeah, because he's the guy they'd like to be like. You know, the rule breaker, the one that does things differently, the one who's going to change the world single-handedly. As if, as if Musk is committing the Teslian error, so to speak. Yeah, because um, actually starting to the... believe the hype himself. <laughs> yeah, because like reading through this book, you, you do see time and again with uh, in steam and in uh, like even things like the transatlantic cable and so forth in the the work you did on that and even. As you said, you've got an, a, a great um, chapter called Showing Off, how they have competitions with each other and so forth. Part of their new discipline of their science that they were bringing into place in the Victorian era was this, we all need to do it together. I need people behind me to achieve these great results. And that sort of iconoclast type character 
doesn't really go anywhere. It looks great for a, a TV or a story or a, a myth if I'm trying to t- tell you a story, but ultimately their success is not as great as the combined effort of a group of disciplined people all working together, coordinated. Yes, I mean, it's 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 the interesting paradox of the period. I mean, you you do have that kind of you know, science is done by great men. Well, actually, yeah. it's actually done by lots of people in laboratories. It's just it's, it's distributed labor. Um, and again, I mean, it's it's really interesting if you look at the what they call scientific romance, you know, what we would call science fiction of the period. Yes, indeed, in scientific romance, you know, it's it's the lone inventor who always makes the breakthrough. It's you know, yeah. some some guy yeah. starving in his garret who invents the flying machine that's going to you know, dominate the globe and inaugurate a new a new era of peace after destroying all the great powers. I mean, that kind of thing. Makes for an easy narrative. I mean, even if you took Frankenstein, for example, okay, it's all completely fictional, has electricity in it, but it is a lone scientist doing the work, but ultimately succeeds, but doesn't succeed because maybe you should have had a better team to make the monster. <laughs> well, possibly so. <laughs> but I also um, was interested in you, one of your other chapters again was surveillance. You're talking about the telegraph, like we we're talking about before. And again, those parallels between a hundred years ago or 150 years ago now. And now people were genuinely concerned about having their calls monitored and messages intercepted, which is what we all deal with today with hacking and everybody else playing around on the internet and so forth. So some things really don't change no matter what we do. When we have some form of communication, we worry about someone else hearing what's being said. Yes. I mean, in fact, I mean, it's, it's, it, I mean, it, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a Victorian concern. Um, in terms of you know, the introduction of the things like the telephone, um, because yes, I mean people are, you know, as you know, as telephones become increasingly kind of necessary elements in a in a middle class home, you know, so that you can communicate with the outside world, you know, they phone your butcher or your baker and send your orders or what have you. There's also a concern about kind of breaching the security of the house, so to speak. Mm. The, um, the, yeah, the privacy of the home. You never, quite, you never quite know who's at the other end of the line. Yeah. Um, you know, young women may form unsuitable liaisons with young men <laughs> over the telephone without, you know, without the painter's permission. Uh, yeah, there are the, yeah, there are those telephone girls in the operate in in, in the in, in the in, in the telephone exchanges, you know, who potentially could be listening in to everything that's that's going on. So yeah, there are echoes of you know, concerns that, that bother us now, so to mm. speak, in the Victorian era. Unsurprisingly, I suppose, because you know, the technologies that we worry about now are, after all, the descendants of those technologies. And you know, things to do with surveillance, with oversight, with control, with listening in, are built into those Victorian te- technologies from the very beginning. That's one of the things that they're for. Yeah. When Charles Wheatstone and William Fogel Cook you know, who are the you know, who are the telegraphs inventors are trying to persuade potential investors are trying to persuade government to invest in in this new invention because you know, they have to persuade them that, that, that there is a use to this they talk about the capacity for surveillance they talk about the capacity for you know using the telegraph to transmit information about about charters rights about unrest the capacity of the government to take over control of the telegraph lines in times of emergency, you know, it's, you know, it's built into you know, the charter that's given to the electrical the, the electric telegraph company. 
to you know, to operate the first telegraph line. So, you know, so they, have, they have a sense of this technology is about oversight and surveillance and control. You know, that's that's there right from the very yeah. beginning. Well, they, they, I mean, that we even see that today with um, even though we've got like internet companies, I suppose, are the same as your um, the girls that used to work the switchboards. There's that. I, is my internet company looking at what I'm doing online, who I'm messaging online, are they intercepting my details, my privacy and so forth? And everyone has concerns. There's been a lot of interest here lately in Australia because we've been having a, a number of hacks on some very big uh, companies and government institutions, presumably from overseas. And so there has been that question of privacy is being raised here a great deal. I'm not seeing it being all that different from the concerns that were being raised in what you write about in the Victorian era. Yeah, again, I mean, it's 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 yeah, it's an aspect of that of of, of these sorts of tech of, of these sorts of technologies. Once you know, you know, once you have these kinds of systems, you know, which, you know, which transmit intelligence, which transmit information quickly all over the all over the world, then there just simply is that. You know, then there is always that possibility of interception. You know, that's you know, that's what those concerns about the all red route. Yeah. After all, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, we're all about you know to make sure that important information wasn't intercepted, wasn't disrupted, and of course, you know, sort of once you know, I mean, e- e- I mean, even as early as the Boer Wars, people started to use telephones as as communication in- instruments you know, in warfare. So yes, of course, there are concerns about yeah. surveillance, and there are concerns yeah. about in- you know, about interception. With and uh, moving on from that part, there I uh, just wanted to get to because naturally the book is talking about how the Victorians got us to the moon. With that aspect of how basically their dreams were chasing their science and their science was chasing their dreams, and they were deciding, look, we can travel from here. We want to have flight. I mean, when we think about it in terms of overall historical time, it was they were talking about going to the moon, and we did it in less than a hundred years from when they were talking about it. It's not actually all that long a time from a historical perspective, that constant chasing, where would you see science going now to the next era? Like, what do you think is going to change in it? That's a really interesting question. The obvious answer is I don't know. I mean, one of the things things that I, that I find quite interesting about certain perceptions of science now, is, I mean, when, you know, when I was a kid, when I was growing up, that science was physics. That's where I wanted to be. I, I was a wannabe physicist until I <laughs> decided that the history of science was, was was more interesting. Physics seemed to be where it where, you know, where it was at. That was the kind of the interesting, challenging, you know, understanding yeah. the secrets of the universe. Um, it seems to me that that's no longer the case. The really interesting and challenging new science that seems to me to be going on at the moment is you know, the science of ourselves, you know, yeah. the science of life, and understanding how how we work, how we can intervene at a very, very basic level to cure diseases, to you know, improve quality of life. I mean, that's 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 what it seems to me. Well, we're seeing that, I suppose, in some ways, once again, that sort of the science, then the dream, then the science, like we're now getting into the point where uh, genetic manipulation, it was a dream 10 years ago, but now I'm seeing on the news this week that they've actually started doing it to um, restrain cancer cells and that sort of thing. So, yes, exactly. Rather... I mean, that's, I mean, that's exactly the kind of thing I'm that, that, that I'm talking about here. Yeah, that, and yeah, I mean, again, it's it's that interesting dynamic of you know, as you, as you put it so wonderfully, science, you know, the science of the dreams, kind of 
chasing each other. Yeah. Which again, I think is a way of doing it, of thinking about it that the Victorians literally invented. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's still very much, you know, you grew up watching Star Trek. Yes, very much so. And, and you see that, and like, yeah, we want to do that as well. And yes, I mean, some things, yes, some things it turns out, no, you can't do. We haven't got warp speed yet, but. Yeah, uh, I mean, take, for example, the fact that uh, mobile phones, the first ones we got were flipped phones you, you know flip them out let's come back in trend now they were designed based on the star trek communicators so you had science fiction yeah, no, I, mean, I, I love that i mean I, yeah. I, I was really sorry when i had to yeah, let my sort of star trek communication device go <laughs> i had the same the technology I had a, moved on yeah it moved on for us and now we've got little screens that can do all sorts of stuff which is a bit more like the tricorders that they used to have in the show than what we have now uh, yes yes yeah <laughs> the same sort of thing yeah so okay so we've got this um I'll just wrap this up now because I don't want to keep you too long because I know it's morning for you and you've got classes to teach. That's what you get for being a doctor of um, philosophy of science, which I think is a pretty cool title to have. Um, this book, of course, we said, as I said, was how the Victorians took us to the moon. What's your next plan? What, what are you looking at doing next? I have a couple of projects. Um, one of the things I'm thinking about is aliens, literally the history of aliens. The same as, yeah. I mean, I suppose in particular the history of, of, of extraterrestrial life. I mean, how people have thought about mm. the potential for life elsewhere. Because again, going back to the Victorians, it was pretty much commonly understood throughout the 19th century that not only they were, that, that not, not only was there life on the other planets, but that there necessarily had to be life. On yeah, I thought planets. that was that was interesting. You had uh, like even from the 1700s, you had Herschel talking about it, saying, I've seen a volcano on the moon. I've seen people, they talk about Venus and Jupiter, and then there must be other planets out there. Ergo, they must have their own people. And for what would be regarded by us today, say being a, a very strict Christian society, their ability to adapt an alien life form outside of God's earth was seemed to be a remarkably easy logical leap for them to make. They just go, yeah, that would be where God made those people for that for that place. I thought that was well, quite yeah, interesting. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, the assumption that you know, there had to be life on other planets you know, is is an entirely theological principle. Mm. God created the universe. The universe is purposeful. The universe is for something. Yeah, you know, the Earth is for us. It makes no particular sense, by and large. They thought to imagine that Mars or Venus, or the moon, were for us, so they must be for somebody else. Someone else, yeah, that was really interesting. So, yeah, yeah, hence, they had to be inhabited. Um, and yes, I mean, there are actually debates as to, did these alien inhabitants of other planets, you know, did they have the Messiah? Or were they saved when we were saved? Yeah. Or was it just us that needed to be saved whilst they didn't? I mean, there, I mean, there, there are interesting questions like that. Um, yeah, that's so aliens, extraterrestrial life yeah. is, yep. is one project. The other project I'm playing with is about illusions, um, about literally seeing things. Okay. How you know, think that optical illusions, ghosts, things, you know, things that seem to be there that aren't there, things that are at the edges of the of the senses. Uh, and again, I mean, how a Victorian culture, the thought of seeing as kind of the primary tool for knowing things dealt with the fact that the eye can be fooled 
Yeah. But well, I mean, see things yeah. it's like illusionists yeah. and so forth. We've seen like the movies we have today is like prestige and so forth. That ability to trick an audience was obviously hugely popular at the time because they knew they were being deceived, but still couldn't work out how it was done. Uh, yes, exactly. I mean, it's sort of, I mean, I mean, the famous Victorian illusion that I love. It's you know, it's John Henry Pepper of the Royal Polytechnic Institution yet again. It's it's, it's Pepper's ghost. You know, this fantastic illusion of a mm-hmm. ghost on stage, which is generated effectively. You, know, you have a you have a, a, a glass plate at forty at a forty five degree angle in front of the stage. Down there in the pits, you have the actor playing the ghost. You're shining a bright light on the actor so that it's reflected from the from the plate and it looks as if that it looks as if there is a ghost on stage and if you that, do your choreography right then yeah so it's kind of like a yeah, reverse a teleprompter um yeah it's it's yeah. it's that it's that kind of thing yeah. and i mean even now you know, when you see you know, alleged you know holograms of you know, famous dead people appearing on stage it's not a hologram that's pepper's ghost yeah oh okay that's oh. how they're that's how they're still doing it that's how they're doing it all right then i will not take any more of your time thank you professor look thank you so much to everyone out there i highly recommend how the victorians took us to the moon it's been available since december 6 you can still get a copy you can still get it before christmas and it is a great read and covers a whole range of topics about science and about the victorian era which was really it's not just about the science side of it which i really enjoyed too because it means you're getting a bit more of a really good perspective on how the Victorian era was throughout the whole century, even before Queen Victoria got on there in 37. So it was all good. Thank you very much again for your time, Professor Morris. Um, I'd love to come back and talk to you some other time about those other books too. I'll be very happy to come and talk (laughs) as well. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for your time. And here ended the episode. I'd like to take a quick thank you once again to Dr. Morris for taking time out of his busy schedule to have a chat to me with regards to that fantastic book, As I said at the beginning, please go and buy it. It really is a worthwhile book to add into your Victorian history collection. And also, if you're just a uh, person who's interested in science in general, well, you certainly see where history repeats itself. You can find me at victoriangaslamp.com. My contact details are on there as well. And you can follow me on Twitter at VicGaslamp. And more importantly, on Instagram, where I post historical facts and trivia, as well as photos related to the episodes. I am at Victorian Gaslamp, or one word, there as well. Thanks for listening, and keep a lookout for new episodes. And as always, I'll see you next time, Under the Gaslamp.